Book Two, Chapter Twenty Eight of The Age of Innocence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Book Two, Chapter Twenty Eight. Oh, oh, how to spell it anyhow? asked the tart young lady to whom Archer had pushed his wife's telegram across the brass ledge of the Western Union office. Olenska. Olenska. He repeated, drawing back the message in order to print out the foreign syllables above May's rambling script. It's an unlikely name for a New York telegraph office, at least in this quarter. An unexpected voice observed and turning around, Archer saw Lawrence Lefferts at his elbow, pulling an imperturbable moustache and affecting not to glance at the message. "'Hello, Newland. Thought I'd catch you here. I've just heard of old Mrs. Mingott's stroke, and as I was on my way to the house, I saw you turning down this street and nipped after you. I suppose you've come from there.' Archer nodded, and pushed his telegram under the lattice. "'Very bad, eh?' Lefferts continued. "'Rying to the family, I suppose. I gather it is bad, if you're including Countess Olenska.' Archer's lips stiffened. He felt a savage impulse to dash his fist into the long, vain, handsome face at his side. "'Why?' he questioned. Lefferts, who was known to shrink from discussion, raised his eyebrows with an ironic grimace that warned the other of the watching damsel behind the lattice. Nothing could be worse form, the look reminded Archer, than a display of temper in a public place. Archer had never been more indifferent to the requirements of form, but his impulse to do Lawrence Lefferts a physical injury was only momentary. The idea of bandying Ellen Olenska's name with him at such a time, and on whatsoever provocation, was unthinkable. He paid for his telegram, and the two young men went out together into the street. There Archer, having regained his self-control, went on. Mrs. Mingott is much better. The doctor feels no anxiety whatever. And Lefferts, with profuse expressions of relief, asked him if he had heard that there were beastly bad rumours again about Beaufort. That afternoon the announcement of the Beaufort failure was in all the papers. It overshadowed the report of Mrs. Manson Mingott's stroke, and only the few who had heard of the mysterious connection between the two events thought of ascribing old Catherine's illness to anything but the accumulation of flesh and years. The whole of New York was darkened by the tale of Beaufort's dishonour. There had never, as Mr. Letterblair said, been a worse case in his memory, nor, for that matter, in the memory of the far-off Letterblair, who had given his name to the firm. The bank had continued to take in money for a whole day after its failure was inevitable, and as many of its clients belonged to one or another of the ruling clans, Beaufort's duplicity seemed doubly cynical. If Mrs. Beaufort had not taken the tone that such misfortunes—the word was her own—were the test of friendship, compassion for her might have tempered the general indignation against her husband. As it was, and especially after the object of her nocturnal visit to Mrs. Manson Mingott had become known, her cynicism was held to exceed his, and she had not the excuse, nor her detractors the satisfaction, of pleading that she was a foreigner. 
it was some comfort to those whose securities were not in jeopardy to be able to remind themselves that beaufort was but after all if a dallas of south carolina took his view of the case and glibly talked of his soon being on his feet again the argument lost its edge and there was nothing to do but to accept this awful evidence of the indissolubility of marriage society must manage to get on without the beauforts and there was an end of it except indeed for such hapless victims of the disaster as medora manson the poor old miss lannings and certain other misguided ladies of good family who if only they had listened to mr henry van der luyden the best thing the beauforts can do said mrs archer summing it up as if she were pronouncing a diagnosis and prescribing a course of treatment is to go and live at regina's little place in north carolina beaufort has always kept a racing stable and he had better breed trotting horses i should say he had all the qualities of a successful horse dealer every one agreed with her but no one condescended to inquire what the beauforts really meant to do the next day mrs manson mingott was much better she recovered her voice sufficiently to give orders that no one should mention the beauforts to her again and asked when dr bencombe appeared what in the world her family meant by making such a fuss about her health if people of my age will eat chicken salad in the evening what are they to expect she inquired and the doctor having opportunely modified her dietary the stroke was transformed into an attack of indigestion but in spite of her firm tone old catherine did not wholly recover her former attitude toward life the growing remoteness of old age though it had not diminished her curiosity about her neighbors had blunted her never very lively compassion for their troubles and she seemed to have no difficulty in putting the beaufort disaster out of her mind but for the first time she became absorbed in her own symptoms and began to take a sentimental interest in certain members of her family to whom she had hitherto been contemptuously indifferent mr welland in particular had the privilege of attracting her notice of her sons-in-law he was the one she had most consistently ignored and all his wife's efforts to represent him as a man of forceful character and marked intellectual ability if he had only chosen had been met with a derisive chuckle but his eminence as a valetudinarian now made him an object of engrossing interest and mrs mingott issued an imperial summons to him to come and compare diets as soon as his temperature permitted for old catherine was now the first to recognize that one could not be too careful about temperatures twenty-four hours after madame olenska's summons a telegram announced that she would arrive from washington on the evening of the following day at the wellands where the newland archers chanced to be lunching the question as to who should meet her at jersey city was immediately raised and the material difficulties amid which the welland household struggled as if it had been a frontier outpost lent animation to the debate it was agreed that mrs welland could not possibly go to jersey city because she was to accompany her husband to old catherine's that afternoon and the brougham could not be spared since if mr welland were upset by seeing his mother-in-law for the first time after her attack he might have to be taken home at a moment's notice the Welland sons would of course be downtown. Mr. Lovell Mingott would be just hurrying back from his shooting, and the Mingott carriage engaged in meeting him, 
and one could not ask May, at the close of a winter afternoon, to go alone across the ferry to Jersey City, even in her own carriage. Nevertheless, it might appear inhospitable, and contrary to old Catherine's express wishes, if Madame Olenska were allowed to arrive without any of the family being at the station to receive her. It was just like Ellen, Mrs. Welland's tired voice implied, to place the family in such a dilemma. "'It's always one thing after another,' the poor lady grieved, in one of her rare revolts against fate. "'The only thing that makes me think Mamma must be less well than Dr. Bencombe will admit is this morbid desire to have Ellen come at once, however inconvenient it is to meet her.' The words had been thoughtless, as the utterances of impatience often are, and Mr. Wellen was upon them with a pounce. "'Augusta!' he said, turning pale and laying down his fork. "'Have you any other reason for thinking that Benchcombe is less to be relied on than he was? Have you noticed that he's been less conscientious than usual in following up my case or your mother's?' It was Mrs. Welland's turn to grow pale, as the endless consequences of her blunder unrolled themselves before her, but she managed to laugh and take a second helping of scalloped oysters before she said, struggling back into her old armour of cheerfulness, my dear how could you imagine such a thing i only meant that after the decided stand mamma took about its being ellen's duty to go back to her husband it seems strange that she should be seized with this sudden whim to see her when there are half a dozen other grandchildren that she might have asked for but we must never forget that mamma in spite of her wonderful vitality is a very old woman mr welland's brow remained clouded and it was evident that his perturbed imagination had fastened at once on this last remark yes your mother's a very old woman and for all we know benchcombe may not be as successful with very old people as you say my dear it's always one thing after another and in another ten or fifteen years i suppose i shall have the pleasing duty of looking about for a new doctor it's always better to make such a change before it's absolutely necessary and having arrived at this spartan decision mr welland firmly took up his fork but all the while mrs welland began again as she rose from the luncheon-table and led the way into the wilderness of purple satin and malachite known as the back drawing-room i don't see how ellen's to be got here to-morrow evening and i do like to have things settled for at least twenty-four hours ahead archer turned from the fascinated contemplation of a small painting representing two cardinals carousing, in an octagonal ebony frame set with medallions of onyx. "'Shall I fetch her?' he proposed. "'I can easily get away from the office in time to meet the broom at the ferry, if May will send it there.' His heart was beating excitedly as he spoke. Mrs. Welland heaved a sigh of gratitude, and May, who had moved away to the window, turned to shed on him a beam of approval. "'So you see, mamma. "'Everything will be settled twenty-four hours in advance,' she said, stooping over to kiss her mother's troubled forehead. May's brougham awaited her at the door, and she was to drive Archer to Union Square, where he could pick up a Broadway car to carry him to the office. As she settled herself in her corner, she said, "'I didn't want to worry Mamma by raising fresh obstacles, but how can you meet Ellen tomorrow and bring her back to New York, when you're going to Washington?' Oh, I'm not going. 
Archer answered. Not going? Why? What's happened? Her voice was as clear as a bell, and full of wifely solicitude. The case is off. Postponed. Postponed? How odd. I saw a note this morning from Mr. Letterblair to Mamma, saying that he was going to Washington tomorrow for a big patent case, that he was arguing before the Supreme Court. You said it was a patent case, didn't you? Well, that's it. The whole office can't go. Letterblair decided to go this morning. Then it's not postponed, she continued, with an insistence so unlike her that he felt the blood rising to his face, as if he were blushing for her unwanted lapse from all the traditional delicacies. No, but my going is, he answered, cursing the unnecessary explanations that he had given when he had announced his intention of going to Washington, and wondering where he had read that clever liars give details, but that the cleverest do not. It did not hurt him half as much to tell May an untruth as to see her trying to pretend that she had not detected him. "'I'm not going till later on. Luckily, for the convenience of your family,' he continued, taking Bay's refuge in sarcasm. As he spoke, he felt that she was looking at him, and he turned his eyes to hers in order not to appear to be avoiding them. Their glances met for a second, and perhaps let them into each other's meanings more deeply than either cared to go. "'Yes, it is awfully convenient.' May brightly agreed. That you should be able to meet Ellen after all. You saw how much Mamma appreciated your offering to do it. Oh, I'm delighted to do it. The carriage stopped, and as he jumped out she leaned to him and laid her hand on his. Goodbye, dearest, she said, her eyes so blue that he wondered afterward if they had shone on him through tears. He turned away and hurried across Union Square, repeating to himself in a sort of inward chant, it's all of two hours from Jersey City to old Catherine's. It's all of two hours. It may be more. End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty Eight of The Age of Innocence.